0: Hey, it's Greg Brown. Grab your logbook cuz it's time for another cockpit adventure from the Flying Carpet. I'm an aviation author, adventure columnist, photographer, former National Flight Instructor of the Year, and Barnes and Noble Arizona Author of the Month. The Flying Carpet is a four-place single-engine light airplane. In it, my wife Jean and I have long traveled the North American continent, searching behind clouds for the real America and experiencing aerial adventures like today's all along the way. Learn more at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, where you can also see photos from most episodes. And I'd appreciate your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Okay, everyone. Hop aboard my Flying Carpet, snug up your seatbelts, and prepare for takeoff on today's cockpit adventure. Flight number 27, Bad Omen. Clear prop. Do you hear that noise in the radios? asked my friend Pete. You mean that faint staticky buzz, I replied. Sometimes dirty alternator brushes will do that. We were over western Missouri, flying Pete's Cessna 210 to Kansas late at night. Could the weather cause it, he asked. I suppose so, with all the electrical activity around here. I imagined the view out Pete's side window, now daubed opaque by the insides of a cloud. A massive line of thunderstorms lay some thirty miles south of us, and for two hours we'd watched pulsating clouds battle with lightning bolts against a jet-black sky. Then we'd entered a stratus layer, blotting out our view. Despite our distance from those thunderheads, our cockpit continued to flash alarmingly from within what seemed like our own private cloud. So intense was the lightning that our faces flickered more with light than dark. Hopefully the lightning itself can't travel this far, said Pete, his face ghoulishly illuminated by a particularly bright flash. Maybe we should climb on top of the clouds, I said. Shall I ask? Pete was flying and I was working the radios. Sure, he replied, turning up the instrument lights to compete with the light show. I waited for a break in the radio conversation, Tib and all the aircraft requesting vectors around thunderstorms. Then I keyed the mic. Kansas City Center, I said. Seven-Niner Charlie with a request, over. Another aircraft broke in before the controller could reply. Can't get a word in, I said to Pete. I'll keep trying. No rush, he replied. I need the cloud-flying practice anyway. The ride was smooth, so despite the light show, we settled into that sense of peace that comes with night flight. Even the radio chatter smoothed into unobtrusive rhythm below our levels of consciousness. Air traffic control was clearly busy, and there seemed no urgency in requesting clearance for the climb. That buzzing seems to be getting louder, said Pete. "'after some time had passed. "'Hard to tell if it's the radios or something else. "'Had any trouble with them recently?' I asked. "'No, but you know how finicky radios can be in bad weather.' "'Again the windshield illuminated, as if to punctuate his remark. "'Ever seen St. Elmo's fire?' I asked, "'referring to the mysterious electrical phenomenon "'sometimes found around thunderstorms.' "'No,' said Pete. I thought that only occurred with ships. Have you? Yeah, but only twice. Once when flying a twin-engine Piper Navajo in similar weather, I looked up to find the windshield glowing electric green. Any danger associated with it? Not that I could tell. Everything in the airplane continued to work properly. Fortunately, I knew what it was, or it might have scared the heck out of me. I understand that on sailing ships, St. Elmo's fire sometimes coated the rigging, said Pete. A very bad omen. There are stories of it covering whole airplanes, I said, but I've never seen that myself. My only other experience was in a 210 like this one. Halos shrouded the antennas and ringed the propeller. Again, I tried contacting center, but with increasing background noise, we could no longer be sure if anyone was answering or not. Gotta have these radios looked at in Lawrence, said Pete. Let's try another frequency. Good idea, I said. Got the next chart? Not until Pete turned to look for it did we notice the bright light glowing from the map pocket near his knee. What the heck, he said, reaching in. Is it a flashlight, I asked? No, he said, directing the beam at me. Sure looks like a flashlight, Pete. Nope. He said, it's a cable for my remote antenna. What do you mean? I have a battery-powered portable radio transceiver for emergencies. This cable connects it to an external antenna on the belly of the plane. Look, the connector is glowing. He touched the illuminated end. Shit, he shrieked, throwing the cable to the floor. Are you okay? I asked, alarmed. Heck of an electric shock, he said. As if to emphasize the seriousness of our situation, the buzzing in our headsets now multiplied into swarms of angry bees. Louder and louder the noise grew, with no moderation as we frantically changed radios, set new frequencies, and wiggled headphone and microphone jacks. Pete and I tried everything, cycling the alternator, pulling the circuit breakers, all to no avail. Ultimately, the din became so alarming and so painful that we tore off our headsets and threw them to the floor. We've got to get out of here, yelled Pete. Let's descend now, I replied. Without asking anybody? There's no choice, I said. If we stay here, we might lose the whole electrical system, fry the radios, and short out the flaps and landing gear. Climbing above the clouds is no good either. It could mean getting stuck on top without electrical power. Let's start down. Without further coaxing, Pete trimmed the nose down while I confirmed terrain clearance on the charts. The whole concept of instrument flying is for every plane to maintain its pre-approved route and altitude, so as to remain clear of other aircraft and the ground. Therefore, descending through clouds without permission is traumatically unnatural for anyone trained in the art. Fortunately, this was flat country, and we could safely descend many thousands of feet, providing no other airplane crossed our path. "'Not many light aircraft flying tonight,' yelled Pete, "'hopefully over the noise of the engine, due to the weather. "'I suppose he was crossing his fingers, as was I. "'Odds of colliding with another aircraft were slim, "'but certainly it was not beyond the realm of possibility. "'Resisting panic, we came down through the clouds "'at a conservative 500 feet per minute. "'At least we were descending under control,' and for the moment anyway, remained far from the ground. Any idea where the cloud bases are, Greg? I haven't checked for a while, but last I heard ceilings were at least 3,000 feet above ground, except near the thunderstorms. Now silent, we descended lower and lower. We had yet to experience a break in the clouds, and although still well above minimum altitude for instrument flying in the area, I couldn't help but think of the tall broadcast antennas in this part of the country. What if our altimeter is wrong and we're lower than we think, I found myself thinking. I had no reason to suspect such a problem. But such is the effect of descending unseeing through opaque clouds when not following an air traffic control clearance or a published instrument approach procedure. "'It's like sliding into a dark hole "'with little sense of how far down the bottom is "'and no idea at all of what awaits you there. "'The tallest antennas near here are 2,000 feet,' I added nervously. "'So let's hope the ceilings haven't come down. "'What should we do if we reach minimum instrument altitude "'without seeing the ground?' asked Pete. "'I have no idea how well the nav radios are working.' That's a good question. Do we stay in the clouds and risk total electrical failure or continue descending below minimum altitude and hope we don't hit anything? That's a tough one. Let's hope we break out before then without having to make that decision. With nothing else to do but sweat, I continued studying my sectional chart. Knowing the surrounding terrain should give us more options if low descent was required. 500 feet per minute is standard for instrument descents in light airplanes but it felt painfully slow under the circumstances. In our minds, each blind second seemed to heighten our exposure to danger. Yet two full minutes were required to descend each thousand feet. I didn't ask Pete, but I suspect the urge to lower the nose and plunge downward was a strong one. Doing so, however, would have been suicidal. <laughs> Four eternal minutes later, we burst mercifully into the clear, nowhere near minimum altitude and still several thousand feet above the ground. Friendly lights beamed welcome from cars and houses a hundred miles away. Although the lightning was more intense than ever, the line of thunderstorms from which it spouted had retreated even farther south. We were in the clear. Shaken, Pete and I looked at each other, then gingerly retrieved our headsets from the floor. They were dead silent. Tuning our last assigned radio frequency, we cautiously turned up the volume. To our great relief, the voices had returned. Kansas City Center, I transmitted. Seven-Niner Charlie here. Do you read me? Loud and clear. We've changed altitude, I told him, suppressing the quiver in my voice after losing radio communications due to the electrical activity. No harm done. The closest traffic near your altitude is 40 miles away. Contact the next sector on frequency 120.5 for approach into Lawrence, and have a good night. Later we'd learn our nemesis had been precipitation static. Flight through certain weather conditions causes buildup of static electrical charge on an airplane's skin. But for the moment, all we cared about was surviving it. Relieved and rejuvenated, we set about preparing to land. Pete arranged his approach charts, and I retrieved the checklist. St. Elmo having now departed our airplane for bigger adventures, I pointed to the again inanimate antenna cable lying on the cabin floor. Pete, aren't you going to coil that up? Not now, he replied, nursing his still sore finger. Remember that business about the bad omen? Well, I'm not touching that thing again until time for the flight home tomorrow. Thanks for riding along on today's Flying Carpet adventure. Please help me continue this podcast by sharing your favorite Flying Carpet episodes on social media, posting reviews on your favorite podcast directories, and donating via my Greg Brown Flying Carpet website. Thanks in advance for your support. You can find photos from most episodes at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out my book of aviation adventure stories, Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, for which I was named Barnes & Noble, Arizona Author of the Month. Learn about that and my other aviation books at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Also at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, you'll find my views from the Flying Carpet Aerial Photography, available in fine art metal prints and pilot achievement plaques. Oh. And I'd appreciate hearing your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Follow my social media sites, most of which can be found by searching Greg Brown Flying Carpet. And consider joining my student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. Thanks again for joining me on today's Flying Carpet Cockpit Adventure. Music by Hannes Brown. See you next time.